Hello, America. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you don't have Consumer Cellular yet, now is the perfect time to switch and save. For a limited time, new customers can get wireless service for as low as $15 a month for your first year. Yep, the same exact nationwide coverage as the leading carriers for $15 a month for an entire year. What are you waiting for? Call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com and use code RADIO15. See ConsumerCellular.com slash FIRSTYEAR15 for promotional details. This Sunday, America and the world. My exclusive interview with Secretary of State Tony Blinken on fighting COVID. We're going to be the world leader on uh, helping to make sure that the entire world gets vaccinated. On defending Taiwan from China. It would be a serious mistake uh, for anyone to try to change the existing status quo. And on Russia's ambitions in Ukraine. If Russia uh, acts recklessly uh, or aggressively, there will be costs, there will be consequences. Plus a divided country on gun safety laws. This is an epidemic for God's sake, and it has to stop. It's not gonna make us any safer. It just infringes on our Second Amendment rights. On Georgia's new restrictive voting laws and MLB pulling its all-star game. This is what happens when you pass laws that disenfranchise people. They folded like a wet dish rag to the cancel culture. We even disagree on things we agree on, like rebuilding America. We need to do what we need to do, but we also have to define infrastructure more broadly than roads and mass transit. This is not an infrastructure bill. If you think this is an infrastructure bill, you probably better stay away from sharp objects. This morning, I'll talk to Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas, who is being attacked by conservatives for not supporting a ban on medical care for transgender youth. I sign uh, many bills that uh, would be looked at as uh, very conservative, but this is one that crosses the line. Joining me for insight and analysis are NBC News Chief White House Correspondent Peter Alexander, Helene Cooper, Pentagon Correspondent for The New York Times, Ashley Parker, White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post, and PBS NewsHour's Senior National Correspondent Amna Nawaz. Welcome to Sunday. It's Meet the Press. From NBC News in Washington, the longest-running show in television history, this is Meet the Press with Chuck Todd. And a good Sunday morning, the writer David French once said right here on Meet the Press that Americans are so dug in politically that if you are 80% my friend, you're 100% my enemy. Today, the personal has become political. In just the past few days, liberals cheered Major League Baseball's decision to move its all-star game out of Georgia because of the state's new, more restrictive voting laws, while conservatives have called for boycotting baseball, Coca-Cola, and Delta for opposing those measures. Where you stand on vaccine passports and masks has become a marker for whom you stand with politically. Washington is even arguing over the definition of the word infrastructure. It's a debate with a $4 billion price tag. And now our differences no longer stop at the water's edge. We're polarized left versus right on immigration, on how to confront China, on whether Russia interfered in the 2016 and 2020 election, and so much more. Joe Biden won the presidential election, promising to bring us together. And the person who has worked most closely with him over the years on foreign policy is Tony Blinken. He's Mr. Biden's Secretary of State. And Secretary Blinken joins me now. Mr. Secretary, welcome to Meet the Press. Thanks, Chuck. Great to be with you. Before I get to all of the various challenges you're facing uh, in this job, I want to start with COVID uh, and the issue of vaccinating the world. Um, We're miles ahead of most countries. There's vaccine inequity is growing. What is 
uh, the, the U.S. responsibility globally, in your view, when it comes to vaccinations? Uh, Chuck, I think we have a significant responsibility, and we're going to be the world leader on uh, helping to make sure that the entire world gets vaccinated. And, and here's why. Uh, unless and until uh, the vast majority of people in the world are vaccinated, it's still going to be a problem for us because as long as the uh, virus is replicating somewhere, mm-hmm. it could be mutating and that it could be coming back to hit us. But similarly, the world has a very strong interest in making sure that we're vaccinated because uh, the same thing applies. Uh, if the vaccine, if the virus is uh, replicating here and mutating here, that's going to be a problem for the rest of the world. So we've taken a leadership role already on day one. We rejoined the World Health Organization. Mm-hmm. We are the largest contributor in the world to COVAX. This is the facility, the international facility to make vaccines right. more available, especially to low and middle income countries. Uh, we've worked uh, a very important arrangement with India, with Japan and Australia, the so-called quad countries, to increase vaccine uh, production around the world. And uh, we've made uh, some loans to our nearest neighbors. Mexico and Canada. As we get more comfortable with where we are in vaccinating mm-hmm. every American, uh, we are then looking at what we can do, what more we can do around the world. You uh, n- uh, recently named Gail Smith, a, a longtime State Department veteran. She's going to be the, right. the global coordinator here. You know, the organization that she ran in between her stints in government actually has called on the United States to um, start distributing 5% of our vaccine supply once we hit 20% vaccinated. Well, that has happened. Is that going to be U.S. policy? It was Gail Smith's organization's idea. Is that going to be U.S. policy? Well, Gail is a terrific leader. As you know, uh, she was uh, instrumental as well in dealing with Ebola uh, some years ago and exerting American leadership to deal with that. Uh, what we're doing right now, Chuck, is again, is we're getting more comfortable with uh, our ability to vaccinate every American. We're putting in place a framework uh, for how we will do more around the world mm-hmm. uh, to share vaccines with others. So stay tuned for that. Okay, um, but what I say this, what is soon? I mean, I I look at look at our hemisphere. You talked about loaning to Mexico and Canada. Brazil is an outbreak that's out of control. It looks like what Mm -hmm. we looked like four months ago. Um, Is this an emergency enough that you think? And and look, the Brazil variants show up in this country faster than, for instance, a variant might show up from Asia or Europe. What do you view as our Western hemisphere responsibility here? Look, our first responsibility is to the American people, and the president's been very clear about that. But that's also a benefit to the world because, again, we have to make sure that uh, people are vaccinated in the United States. That's going to have an impact on whether the virus continues to replicate and mutate in other places around the world. But as we're doing that, as we're getting to that point where we're confident that every American can be vaccinated, we will be leaning in uh, to uh, doing more around the world. It's a very vague deadline. You say as we there's a lot of people say we're there now. We have contracts for doses uh, for more more people than we have in our population. So um, what is soon? Is soon weeks? Look, the experts are looking at that. Um, we have to keep a few things in mind. We have to keep in mind that we're going to have a need uh, and hopefully uh, soon to be able to vaccinate uh, teenagers, ultimately vaccinate children. We also have to keep in mind the possibility that people will need booster shots. These are things we don't know for sure yet. So all of that has to get factored in. It is being factored in, but I'm confident that we're getting uh, very confident about our ability to vaccinate every American. And again, as we do that, we'll be putting in place a framework to do more around the world. I think when all is said and done, mm-hmm. you will see the United States as the leading country around the world in making sure that everyone has access to vaccines. Where does the U.S. stand on the idea that's um, coming from countries like India and South Africa that say, you know what, intellectual property claims on anything pandemic related, in particular vaccines, should be waived right now? Where does the U.S. stand on that? So I'll, I'll defer to some of my colleagues. We're looking at all of these questions, but, you know, there are different ways of, of doing this. And one of the most important things that we have 
is this COVAX facility that brings countries around the world together. We are the largest contributor to that. That in and of itself, I think, is going to have a dramatic ability on our, on our ability uh, to uh, make sure that more people around the world have access to vaccines. That's what this is all about. It's making sure that access to vaccines increases and we're covering as many people as possible around the world. What is our priority when it comes to deciding where we choose to have vaccine diplomacy? Do we put it all to COVAX, essentially, and let them make those decisions? Mm -hmm. Or are we going to favor allies first? Look, I think you're going to see a combination of things. Uh, COVAX is, is vitally important, but there are efforts that we will undertake uh, country to country. And as I said, we've already done that in the case of our two nearest neighbors. That obviously has Canada and Mexico, uh, where we loan vaccines to both. Um, that obviously has uh, immediate security and health uh, implications for the United States. You're going to see a combination of things. The, the, the ultimate question that we have to, uh, that we're grappling with is to how can we be most effective in increasing access around the world? That's what we're focused on. Uh, the origins of COVID, the WHO initial report settled nothing. Let me ask you this. Do you think China does know this answer and they're withholding it? Hmm. Very good question. Uh, I think China, here's what I think China knows. I think China knows that uh, in the early stages of COVID, it didn't do what it needed to do, which was to, in real time, give access to international experts, in real time to share information, in real time to uh, uh, provide real transparency. And one result of that failure is that uh, the vaccine, the uh, virus, excuse me, got uh, out of hand uh, faster and with uh, I think much uh, more uh, egregious results than it might otherwise. But this speaks to what we have to do now, Chuck. Um, and this speaks to what China and other countries have to do now. As we're dealing with COVID-19, uh, we also have to put in place a stronger global health security system to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Or if it does happen again, mm -hmm. we're able to, to mitigate it, to get ahead of it. And that means making a real commitment to transparency, to information sharing, to access for experts. Yeah. It means strengthening the World Health Organization and reforming it so it can do that. And China has to play a part in that. Do we have to get to, are we going to guarantee to the world that we're going to get to the bottom of how this originated? Well, I think we have to because we need to do that <laughs> precisely so uh, we fully understand what happened in order uh, to uh, have the best shot possible at preventing it from happening again. That's why we need to get to the bottom of this. Um, are we prepared to defend Taiwan militarily? So, Chuck, what we've seen and what is of real concern to us is in increasingly aggressive actions by the government in Beijing uh, directed at Taiwan, uh, raising tensions in the straits. And we have a commitment uh, to Taiwan under the Taiwan Relations Act uh, a bipartisan commitment that's existed for, for many, many years to make sure that Taiwan has the ability to defend itself and to make sure uh, that we're sustaining peace and security in the Western Pacific. We stand behind uh, those commitments. And all I can tell you is it would be a serious mistake uh, for anyone to try to change the existing status quo by force. I understand that. So it does sound like you're saying that, look, we have commitments. And if China does try something in Taiwan, we will militarily respond. I'm not going to get into hypotheticals. All I can tell you is uh, we have a serious commitment uh, to Taiwan being able to defend itself. We have a serious commitment to peace and security in the Western Pacific. Uh, and uh, in that context, it would be uh, a okay. serious mistake for anyone to try to change that status quo by force. Why um, do you understand if China looks at what our reaction was to Crimea and Russia and think, think those commitments are not as um, rock solid as you just outlined them as? Well, I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's true. When in the case of uh, Crimea and the case of uh, the the Donbass, 
The United States back then led a very significant international effort uh, to impose real costs and sanctions on Russia for its aggression in uh, in Crimea, in uh, in the Donbass. How's that worked uh, out? We've, uh, in fairness, well, sir. I mean, it hasn't worked so out what very we don't, well. What we don't know is uh, would has this deterred Russia from doing even more? And as we speak right now, I have to tell you, we have real concerns about Russia's actions on the borders of Ukraine. There are more Russian forces massed on those borders than at any time since 2014 when Russia uh, first invaded. Uh, that's why we're in very close contact and close coordination with our allies and partners in Europe. Uh, all of us share that concern. And President Biden's been very clear about this. Uh, if Russia uh, acts recklessly uh, or aggressively, mm. there will be costs, there will be consequences. He's equally clear-eyed about the proposition that uh, when it comes to Russia, there are areas where our interests align mm -hmm. uh, or certainly overlap. And uh, we have an interest in working together, for example, on arms control, as we did in extending the START uh, agreement. So the question is, uh, is Russia going to continue to act aggressively yeah. and recklessly? If it does, uh, the president's been clear, there'll be costs, there'll be consequences. Mr. Secretary, I, I, what, you, what you just outlined on Russia sounds like the exact same policy the Obama-Biden administration had towards Russia mm. on this. That was that that is not positioned Russia to be better actors. That didn't that policy arguably didn't work. We're not saying that Trump's policy worked either. What do you say to that? Well, I say, first of all, we can't go we can't go back to four years ago or six years ago or eight years ago. Pick your pick your year. Uh, we have to deal with uh, with the world as it is now. And as we anticipate, it will be what I can tell you is this. Um, the president before uh, he was elected made clear that, again, when it comes to Russia's actions, mm -hmm. uh, there'll be costs and consequences if it acts uh, recklessly and aggressively. Um, and uh, you can hold him to that word. You said during, I believe it was during your confirmation hearing, you said that China's treatment of the Uyghurs was, quote, an effort to commit genocide. And I guess I got to ask it this way. How do you justify doing business with China or any country that you believe is committing genocide? When it comes to uh, what we're seeing from the government in Beijing, including uh, with regard to uh, to the Uyghurs and uh, the the actions it's taken in Xinjiang, yes, I think that's uh, that that's exactly uh, the right description. And uh, we need to be able to do a few things. We need to be able to to bring the world together in speaking with one voice in condemning uh, what has mm -hmm. taken place and what continues to take place. Uh, we need to take actually concrete actions to make sure, for example, uh, that none of our companies are providing. Uh, China with uh, things that they can use to repress populations, including the Uyghur population. Uh, we need to be looking at products that are made in uh, that part of China to make sure that uh, they're not uh, they're not coming here. Uh, but we also uh, have to make sure that um, we're dealing with um, uh, all of our interests. And what is the best way uh, to effectively advance our interests mm -hmm. and our values? Uh, and when it comes to China, we have to be able to deal with China on uh, areas where uh, those interests are implicated and require uh, working with China, even as we stand resolutely against uh, egregious violations of human rights, or, or in this case, uh, acts of genocide. Some people think a proper punishment for their human rights record is to not to participate in the in the 2022 Winter Olympics. Is that on the table among Western allies or not? Uh, Chuck, we're not there yet. This is uh, this is a year or so before the Olympics. Uh, we're not focused on uh, uh, on a boycott. Uh, what we are focused on is. Uh, talking, uh, consulting closely with our allies and partners, listening to them, listening to concerns. Uh, but uh, that's premature. I got to ask you about Afghanistan. Look, the president made clear we're not going to be there a year from now. Right. Whether it's May, this mm. May, June, I, I, I will I will cede you this this sort of timeline here. But let me ask you this. 
how, how can how are we leaving any differently than the Russians, the Soviets did in 79 in this respect? Um, they left. There was no real transition in place. It, what the version of the Taliban take. There's a civil war. They take over. We know what happens. Hmm. How do we not think the same thing's going to happen again? Chuck, two things here. First, the president is committed uh, to uh, uh, to ending this war, to bringing our troops home. And to making sure as we do that, to the best of our ability, that Afghanistan never again becomes a haven uh, for terrorism and particularly for uh, terrorism that targets the United States. That's why we went there in the first place. That's what brought us there. Um, look, ultimately, uh, any uh, peace that is going to be lasting uh, and that is going to be uh, just has to be uh, Afghan led. And uh, what we're doing now is really energizing our diplomacy to try to bring uh, the parties together, the Taliban, the government of Afghanistan, other key players, but also countries in the region that have interests and influence in Afghanistan to try and move in that direction. I don't think anyone in Afghanistan, whether it's the Taliban, whether it's the government, and certainly not the people, have an interest in that country falling back into civil war. Uh, they've been in, in conflict for 40 years. Uh, if the Taliban, for example, wants recognition, if they want international support, if they're part uh, of some kind of new right. government going forward in Afghanistan, uh, that can't happen. Uh, that, su that support won't be there. So, uh, you know, we'll see how the parties okay. calculate their interests. I think other countries also have to step up uh, and help move Afghanistan in a positive direction. Final question is this. Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, a former CIA officer, she's asked the State Department to start to designate um, additional overseas white supremacist groups. We know that there's some international white supremacist groups around there and designate them as foreign terrorist organizations. Is that something you're looking mm -hmm. at? We're looking across the board at the uh, increasing uh, danger posed by uh, white supremacist groups uh, around the world. Uh, and this is uh, a growing problem and a, and a growing challenge. So it's something we're looking at and we'll have to decide how we can be most effective for our part uh, in dealing with the problem. Secretary Tony Blinken, we got through a lot. I appreciate the time you spent, <laughs> and there's also a lot more we didn't get to, but hopefully that'll be for another time that you make it here and meet the press. Thank you for with your pleasure. perspective and time, sir. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Good to you be with you. It. When we come back, why Democrats may find passing bills even more difficult than they thought. The panel is next. At Consumer Cellular, you get the same exact coverage as the largest carriers, but for up to half the cost. Same thing, up to half the cost. Up to half the cost for the same thing. 50% the money for 100% the same thing. I hope I'm making myself clear. Consumer Cellular. When freedom calls, we're here to answer. Call us at 1-888-FREEDOM. Half the cost savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single-line 5 gigabyte data plan with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single-line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plan offered by T-Mobile and Verizon May 2023. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back. The panel is with us. NBC News Chief White House Correspondent Peter Alexander. Helene Cooper, Pentagon Correspondent for The New York Times. Ashley Parker, the White House Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. And PBS NewsHour Senior National Correspondent Amna Nawaz. Welcome to all of you. Helene, I want to start with you. And we're, I'm going to do a little uh, sort of digestion here of what we just heard from Secretary Blinken. And I want to start with you on, on his comments about Taiwan. And what are you, what is the Pentagon doing right now as they prepare to deal with whatever it is China's uh, thinking about doing with Taiwan? 
Uh, hey, Chuck, uh, they're doing a lot of talking. I mean, I think the administration, as administrations, administrations in the past have done, really wants to be sh- uh, to make sure that they don't have to actually do anything. It's, it's very similar to what you see, uh, the, the same, same uh, role that the U.S. has adopted in the South China Sea and in the East China in the East China Sea with the, uh, China's, uh, incursions into these, uh, disputed islands, uh, the United States is going to talk a very strong game and they're going to hope very much that they're not brought, uh, uh, that they're not, uh, their backs aren't put to the wall because there isn't really a plan in place. The Pentagon has many, many plans, of course, and they have options for everything, mm-hmm. but nobody wants any kind of military conflict with China. That's the last thing on, on the, on, right. uh, uh, that the U.S. would like right now. You know, on a larger picture here, it was just interesting that when you think about the various challenges internationally, um, the administration seems on Russia and Afghanistan not to have new thinking here, right? And, and we could say there, it's a, a little more developed when it comes to how to handle China. They they, they seem to have a point of view. Um, on the on the Russia front, um, they do seem to be a bit at square one at how to how to have a constructive relationship with Putin. It's so interesting. I found, they do a bit. Uh, uh, I found Secretary Blinken's answer to uh, uh, your question about Russia and, right. and Ukraine to be fascinating because we very much were going back to um, uh, to uh, 2015 and right. 2016 and 2013 and the Crimea uh, the Crimea invasion. Ukraine is not in NATO, so there is no treaty obligation right. to protect Ukraine from from a Russian Russian incursion. But beyond that, um, this is again another another case of hoping it doesn't happen. I'm not way in here. Absolutely. I agree with what Helene's saying here, which is that there hasn't been a lot of specific change that we've seen in terms of that overall policy. I think they're still very much figuring out how that works. But of course, the challenges for this administration are also very different. And you're talking about how to weigh those relationships with China and Russia in the middle of a global pandemic, given all of those other geopolitical interests and worries right now, that has to be considered. I mean, certainly the uh, the approach to China the Biden administration has taken so far is different than the one the Trump administration took, which is certainly different to the one the Obama administration before them took as well. But in the midst of a global pandemic, when you're seeing efforts at play and things like vaccine diplomacy, people exerting influence in different parts of the world in different ways, all of that is going to inform how the Biden administration moves forward. And with so much uncertainty around the pandemic right now, right. I don't think they know exactly how to move forward with it yet. Peter Alexander, the, 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 the crisis at the border is something that some people think maybe should the State Department have more involvement. There doesn't seem to be interest in the Biden administration of of doing that yet, that instead this is still a a, a problem that's more uh, DHS, HHS. Um, But it does seem as if this White House doesn't want to bring a lot of high profile attention to the issue right now. Yeah, you're exactly right. There was news on this late on Friday where they announced that the former ambassador to Mexico, Roberta Jacobson, the border czar, as they described her, in fact, uh, would not be staying on past 100 days. That was something the White House insists was the plan all along. But what it does, Chuck, is it intensifies this pressure on the vice president, Kamala Harris, vice president's aides. They insist that all along the strategy was for her to be in charge of migration and the root causes in the northern triangle nations of El Salvador and Honduras. 
Honduras and Guatemala here, but she hasn't made any trips to that region yet, although she has made trips focusing on other issues in places like Chicago and California and Connecticut, right. focusing on jobs and other things. And I'm told um, by a senior White House official that she will not be traveling to those Northern Triangle nations for at least the next two months. So you can anticipate that this mm -hmm. issue is only going to grow and the pressure on her is going to grow as well to do more. There is. I'm sure it's going to become a, a talking point on the right. Where's, you know, why won't the vice president go? I, I've already been hearing that a little bit on talk radio. Let me pivot the conversation here, Ashley, to I'm going to put up a sentence here because never have two sentences, frankly, gotten a lot of people in Washington to try to figure out what they mean. Maybe if you play Joe Manchin backwards, you'll hear what it means. But here's what he wrote from his op-ed. Senate Democrats must avoid the temptation to abandon our Republican colleagues on important national issues. Republicans, however, have a responsibility to stop saying no and participate in finding real compromise with Democrats. Just what did Joe Manchin accomplish with his op-ed this week, other than reminding all of us it basically he's the guy that says yes or no to this agenda? Well, that's exactly right. He again elevated himself as sort of the key senator. He's a moderate Democrat from West Virginia who the Biden administration really has to negotiate with and placate with to get anything done, any of their legislative priorities, even through this budgetary process of reconciliation that only requires 50 Democratic votes. He is often that 50th vote and the uh, decisive vote. And you mentioned sort of the confusion in, in talking um, to a, a Manchin ally recently, they explained that one of the challenges sometimes in understanding and parsing exactly what he's saying is that he is often not looking at sort of the holistic picture and he will answer the question in front of him. Again, this is an op-ed where he actually had a chance to step back and take a moment to try to explain himself. But he often says things that seem very contradictory because he's answering one question or another and not necessarily answering the broader thing of he wants bipartisanship. He also wants infrastructure. What happens if Republicans right. won't play ball on infrastructure? Um, now, bottom line, do, do Democrats think Joe Manchin will be there or not for them? I think the answer is they certainly hope so. And look, Joe Manchin is sitting pretty right now. I mean, as Ashley mentioned, being that key vote in a 50-50 Senate is the place to be. And he's different from Kirsten Sinema in a couple of ways. One is he can block or kind of push back on some of the Democratic caucus agenda. And he's also willing to. I mean, for all the rhetoric about bipartisanship and both sides needing to come together, I'm sure if you asked him to name those 10 Republican senators who he thinks would cross the aisle, right. he'd be hard-pressed to name those. But specifically, to some things like the filibuster, which you know we've spo he's spoken right. out against and said he doesn't want to undermine or weaken in some ways, you got to look at where the rubber meets the road, right? You look at the efforts in Georgia right now to add those restrictions to voting laws that are disproportionately going to affect black and brown people. Democrats, of course, need changes to the filibuster rules right. to try to propose laws that would push back against that. Joe Manchin doesn't have in West Virginia a black voting base that he is accountable to. It's not something that ideologically or politically hits home for him. So he's going to exert influence on the things that matter to him and the way that they do. Peter, you'll understand I'm up against a break very quickly. How did the White House uh, absorb Manchin? Well, I week. guess what I would just say is what's notable that we're seeing right now is how different the tone is as we speak about infrastructure than it was about COVID relief. On COVID relief, right. they basically brought Republicans in and then stuck to the dollar figure and stuck to their deadline. On infrastructure, Joe Biden himself has said that he's wide open on how big it would be, on what the corporate tax rate would be. As for Manchin saying it should be 25 percent, 
They said they thought that was a good starting point in the conversations I'd had with them. And the deadline for this, Chuck, I'm told, is by August recess. So four months. We're going to be talking about this for quite a while. That's interesting. I remember when the deadline was July 4th. It's already moved a month, arguably, um, which I think it was inevitable that it would move a bit. When we come back. A Republican governor finds himself on the wrong side of his own party's culture war. Arkansas's Asa Hutchinson joins me next. Welcome back. One of the weapons Republicans are using with an eye towards retaking power is to tar Democrats uh, on a number of cultural issues. But sometimes Republicans get caught in that crossfire when Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson vetoed a bill that would ban gender-affirming treatments for transgender youth the state's veto-proof Republican majorities in the House and Senate overrode his veto by substantial margins. In a Washington Post op-ed last week, Hutchinson wrote, I'm being attacked by some of uh, my Republican colleagues for not being pure enough on social issues and for vetoing a bill that limited access to health care for transgender youth. Governor Hutchinson joins me now. Governor, welcome back to Meet the Press. I'm curious, this was the third bill targeting transgender uh, youth in some form and the issue in some form, that had passed the legislature. Did you veto this third bill because of the specifics of the bill, or was this also, or how much of it was enough already with these bills that seemed to be in search of, of, a, of a problem that didn't exist? Well, each bill has to stand on its own. I signed two that I thought uh, made sense. Uh, one was girls in sports, uh, trying to protect uh, women's sports. Uh, the other one was uh, supporting medical conscience, that uh, doctors uh, can uh, claim a, a conscience reason if they want to deny a particular procedure, but they have to do emergency care. Uh, and so those are two bills that I signed. The third one uh, was not uh, well done. It did not uh, protect the youth. It interfered uh, with the government getting into the lives of, of transgender youth as well as their parents and the decisions that doctors made. And to me, it's about compassion, uh, but it is also about uh, making having the laws make sense in a limited role of government. Uh, and that's the case that I made in the Washington Post column, right. uh, that as Republicans, we need to get back and ask the question, is this the appropriate role of government are we restraining ourselves? Look, you've got quite a few, and you're not, your state legislature is not the only one like this, but you've got a, quite a few of what I think would be described as um, loosely culture war bills, or what I'm going to describe as culture war bills, a bill that got withdrawn but wanted to ban anything that had to do with the 1619 project. You couldn't teach it in schools, or another one that would have banned school, tied school funding in case you did this stuff. And I'm just curious, why do you think there is so much focus among some members of the legislature on, on issues that I, I, you tell me, is this really bubbling up in Arkansas schools? Uh, well, it's not, but it, the fear is about the future. And the fear is also that we're losing our culture. And the case I make, though, is that uh, just because uh, you want to uh, uh, keep things as uh, they have been, perhaps. Uh, you don't need to use the instrument of the law. You don't need to use the state to accomplish that purpose in every instance. Uh, there is the church. There is society. There is your community. And that's where the culture is is impacted or reflected in the future. And so, again, uh, there's too much. Uh, as a Republican Party, it's the principles of limited government, and it's pushing freedom and choice uh, in uh, the free market. Uh, that's what the party is about. Uh, we've got to 
apply those principles even when it comes to the social war. But I'm curious if you're now, if, if you, if you're the voters inside the Republican Party don't agree with what you said. I want you to put up something Jonathan Last from the Bulwark wrote. He said Republican voters no longer have a, any concrete outcomes that they want from government. What they have instead is a lifestyle brand. And if you want to move up the ladder within a brand network, you don't do it by governing or making policy. You do it by getting attention. A lot of these issues seem to be designed to get attention, right, rather than maybe uh, solve a long-term problem uh, of governance. No, I think they're well-intentioned. It's just that they're uh, taking us in the wrong direction. And uh, again, restraint is the word. Uh, I don't want to criticize uh, my Republican legislators that I know their heart uh, they believe uh, in this, but I think uh, what I did and have said in my veto hopefully is a reminder to Republicans all across the country uh, as we look at uh, particular issues and, and organizations trying to get us involved to pass laws to solve different problems, ask the fundamental question, is this the right role of government? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there a better way to do it? Uh, is this reflecting the best of the Republican Party? And is it reflecting compassion? And I think those are important questions that I tried to ask in the bill that I vetoed. And I think that it, message is an important one across the country. Um, let me ask you this about government interference, because you have, you've made a strong case on limited government when it came to these decisions between a parent, a child, their doctor. Somebody's going to hear that and say, how come you don't have the same view when it comes to abortion? Uh, Absolutely. And that's an appropriate question. But as you know, there's a big difference uh, uh, in the case of abortion. And I've signed a multitude of pro-life bills, I believe, in protecting the life of the unborn. Uh, The distinction is that medical science is clear as to the life of the unborn. uh, And so science, uh, we're reflecting that in the laws that we passed. Uh, In this case, when we're talking about transgender youth, Parents uh, are involved in the decision-making. The science is, is not as clear, uh, and uh, you have a physician uh, that's involved. And so you can't apply each of those uh, to each other. Uh, this is a separate issue. You have to evaluate them separately. But in this case, uh, clearly, I don't believe that this is something the government should be telling the youth. Uh, you cannot have this treatment that your parent and the doctor recommends uh, even though uh, uh, you could, you, you, the, everybody's heart probably is in the right place and looking after the youth is not an appropriate role of government. Compassion says, right. uh, particularly one of the reasons I vetoed it yeah. uh, was there was not a grandfather clause. It interrupted the treatment that right. they were having at the time. Uh, let me ask you a larger question here about the future of the Republican Party. You know, in November, you were on Meet the Press and you said you thought there would be a significant debate as to exactly the direction of the Republican Party. That was before January 6th, before all of this other stuff happened. Um, have your expectations now changed? Uh, do you really expect to see a debate, or did Donald Trump temporarily win the debate? No, I think it uh, will continue. Uh, you know, whenever you look at uh, President Trump, as I've said, he has a voice, uh, and he's utilizing that voice. Uh, but there's going to be many other helpful? voices Is in the party. Is that a helpful party. voice? And, 
Well, I don't think his most recent comments about uh, Senator McConnell are helpful uh, if they were reported accurately. Uh, so to me, you've got to engage in the fight that we have in 2022. Right now, we got some important fights in Washington yeah. about uh, a big government solution to every problem that we have. And the Republican voice is important. Let's don't undermine that voice right. and the leadership that we have that's that's uh, really the uh, finger in the dike right now. Very quickly, a COVID question. Um, in the bottom, in the lowest rates of vaccination, Arkansas is in the top, in the top 10 of lowest rates of vaccination right now. Um, what do you attribute that to? We've seen a, there is a red-blue divide. Uh, it's not as stark as it was two months ago, but it's still there. Are you having trouble convincing some conservatives to get the vaccine? Well, it's not necessarily conservative. I believe it is uh, rural Arkansas. The fact in Arkansas, our cases are low, our hospitalizations road are, are low. And so uh, there's a sense that the emergency is not there. My job is to remind everyone that yeah. we're in a critical time and we have to get those vaccination into arms because what we see happening in other states and across the ocean could come here, even to Arkansas. So we've got to get those uh, shots uh, out. We're working very hard to accomplish that. And uh, we're taking our allocation. We're uh, right. increasing every day. Everybody over 16 can get the shot. We want them to. Governor Asa Hutchinson, yeah, remind people, people can drive to Arkansas from Michigan. And we know Michigan's got uh, a trouble spot right now. Anyway, Governor Hutchinson, Republican from Arkansas, thank you for coming on and sharing your perspective. Thank you, Chuck. Great to be with you today. When we come back, the rise of right-wing violence in the U.S. as told by members in and out of extremist groups. This is a story you really won't want to miss. Welcome back. The January 6th assault on the Capitol focused the nation's attention like never before on violent political extremism, especially from the far right. In fact, far right wing attacks have accounted for the majority of terrorist related events and plots in this country since 1994. That according to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. NBC News correspondent Morgan Radford and producer Aaron Franco have been reporting on this issue for years, and they have a must-see story on our streaming show, Meet the Press Reports, which airs live on NBC News Now Thursdays and is available all the time on Peacock. Among the many people they met recently was Chester Doles. He's running for a county commissioner seat in northern Georgia. Doles is a former KKK member who says he's done with the far right. But as you'll see in this clip from Meet the Press Reports, that's not necessarily the case. I know that you had come out and denounced racism, but when I was looking at social media, you had put this picture here saying that Jovi Val was coming to speak at one of your rallies here. And then this is him, Jovi Val, with a racist. And I mean, this is a Nazi hand gesture. And then he posted here, get in, we're hunting Juden. So he's talking about Jews. And that's him at your platform. Do you think that's someone who's a white supremacist? You know, I don't. I wouldn't call him a white supremacist. I think uh, Joby's got some issues. I didn't know he was that quite that extreme. We were but that to was find posted before you invited him. When you invited him and said you were bringing him here, he had already posted those things. Yeah, well, Joby was involved a lot with the MAGA. I wasn't aware of any of his other street activism. But what about... Like on your social media, these are the people following you with swastikas and white power signs. Why are these people attracted to you and your platform? I don't know. Maybe they're good people, you know, as far as being good American citizens and stuff. But uh, Can you be a good person, a good American citizen with a swastika and white power? I don't look into people's personal 
you know, what they're all about. What about this one? I saw you posted just recently this year. You were posting about Valentine's Day stickers and you showed 1488. Oh, God forbid. What does that mean? I don't know. You don't know what 1488 means? No. All that time and in the clan and reading these white supremacists, 1488 means nothing to Didn't you? tell you. Is but it a coincidence that it's a white supremacist? It must be. He knows exactly what it means. Jonathan Greenblatt is an extremism expert with the Anti-Defamation League. The number 14 refers to what they describe as the 14 words, which is kind of a white supremacist maxim. And 8-8 refers to the letter H, right? It's the, it's the eighth letter of the alphabet. And H-H means Heil Hitler. You can see Morgan Radford's complete report on Meet the Press Reports. It's now streaming on Peacock. You'll meet somebody who's escaped the movement, and you'll meet some folks sparking one up on the left. This week's episode is part of our network-wide look at American extremism 100 days after the Capitol riot. We do hope you'll find Meet the Press Reports all this spring as we take an in-depth look at one issue each week. When we come back, the pilgrimage Republicans made to Florida this weekend and the man they all came to see. Welcome back. Well, if proximity uh, equals power, then this simple geography of how the Republican Party spent the weekend tells you who's in charge of this party. Ashley Parker, it is Donald Trump, the RNC, uh, having its meeting in Palm Beach County and then having a Mar-a-Lago event. But, of course, it's the remarks he mentioned about Mitch McConnell that that even Governor Hutchinson brought up. Let me put up these remarks, um, and we have confirmed them here at NBC. Uh, If that were Schumer instead of this dumb son of a blank, Mitch McConnell, they never would allow it to happen. They would never have fought it. I hired his wife. Did he ever say thank you? You know, Ashley, you know, Mitch McConnell's been trying to go out of his way to sort of uh, embrace some of the Trump world's complaints about election security and things like that with his with his stance in Georgia. And I guess this is the payback. That's exactly right. And President Trump uh, also down there uh, continued to perpetuate the lie that the election was stolen and criticized his own vice president, Mike Pence, uh, for not having the courage to refuse to certify uh, the results of a free and fair election. And therein lies the challenge for the Republican Party. If there is any leader for the party right now, it is Donald Trump, the former president. Um, But he does not view himself as the leader of a traditional Republican Party. He views himself as the leader of a MAGA movement, of a movement of Trump supporters. And the interest between former President Trump and the Republican Party and Republican Party leadership are frequently not aligned to the point where Donald Trump will criticize in quite stark terms the leader of, of Senate Republicans. And no one quite knows how to handle this. By the way, Helene, when all is said and done, we keep learning more. The Pentagon provided a little more information about January 6th and this former Vice President Mike Pence, begging for help, clear the Capitol. Um, Do you think we'll know the full story of what happened inside the Pentagon that day? I think we will. Uh, I think that the, I mean, I think we already know a lot of what happened. I mean, we've, we've been reporting for some time and including on January 6th as it happened that it was, uh, Vice President Pence at the time and not Donald Trump, who was, uh, the one giving, uh, asking for the National Guard. Trump didn't want to see the National Guard going there, uh, against people who he thought were his supporters initially. 
Uh, and I think a lot, but I think what we, we, you, as these details continue to dribble out, they're going to paint a, a fuller picture. Yes. But I think we all know the bottom line of the story, mm-hmm. which is very much of a, a military and a military leadership that because they over responded to all the right. Black Lives Matter protests in, um, June, uh, because uh, General Milley walked across Lafayette Square with President Trump, because right. they tried so hard to stop him from invoking the Insurrection Act and putting active duty troops on the streets against American citizens, were now then as a consequence underprepared for what happened uh, when the tables turned. And then you had right wing protesters uh, on January 6th storming the Capitol. They had been yeah. saying so long, we're not going to put soldiers uh, on the streets against uh, Americans. Right. That when the time came that they actually needed to, they weren't ready to do so. Amna, you want to chime in? I got to say, absolutely. I mean, everything Helene is saying is absolutely correct. There was a reluctance on the day to respond in real time. But you also have to look at the the heart of the issue there, which was the reluctance before that event to see all of these forces as a real threat. And Morgan's reporting on this goes to the core of all of this, which has been this rising trend of white supremacist-inspired extremism and domestic terrorism in America. I mean, white supremacy is a story as old as America. We are just now waking up to it as the leader domestic terror threat. It's the biggest domestic terror threat since the Civil War, in fact. And so you have to be able to see the way the national security bodies are responding to this now with the Biden administration. They are just now beginning to catch up to it. At the same time, I got to go back to something you mentioned earlier in your interview with Secretary Blinken, which was the foreign threat has not gone away. When you look at the way that we are leaving Afghanistan, asking the same people we've been fighting for the last 20 years to stop attacking Americans, cut ties with al-Qaeda, we don't know that they've done that. We're leaving Afghanistan with thousands of Afghan citizens dead. And by the way, a U.S. hostage still there on the ground. Mark Freerich, it's it's not clear to his family when he'll come back. So the U.S. government, national security bodies have now to be able to handle both the potential for foreign threats where we've long focused and this new, more important threat here at home. And the Republican Party, Peter Alexander, doesn't seem to be um, at least uh, interested, at least publicly, to try to disassociate itself with so many of these folks. But we saw the circular firing squad be in the party, right? So, you know, Trump goes after these corporations. Yeah. Then Mitch McConnell, I'm going to play that. He actually tried to go after corporations and then had to end up walking it back. Let me play some of that sound. My warning, if you will, to corporate America is to stay out of politics. It's not what you're designed for. I didn't say that very artfully yesterday. They're certainly entitled to be involved in politics. They are. My principal complaint is they didn't read the darn bill. Now, already making the rounds on Twitter, somebody said, uh, does does, uh, Mitch McConnell need to express that Donald Trump shouldn't be commenting about politics? Um, But, you know, they're all just attacking each other, right? All of these different constituency groups. This party seems to get more fragmented the more it it doesn't seem to figure out how to distance itself from Donald Trump. Yeah, you want to talk about new terrain. It's having Republicans attack corporate America. The Republican chairwoman even saying, in effect, that she was going to boycott baseball. It's hard to fathom only a matter of years ago that you would hear words like that. But I think it is this 
this is why you're seeing this sort of culture war, the coming culture war right now where they're fighting on issues, as we've talked in recent weeks, on these Dr. Seuss-type issues, these issues like what was going on with Major League Baseball in recent weeks, because that is one issue that really does unify the Republican Party uh, at large. It's an issue that they're passionate about. It energizes donors. It energizes the base here more broadly. And I think it's a place you're going to see the conversation continue because yeah. Republicans are on the outside as it relates to Americans' views on the economy. COVID relief was widely popular. Republicans across the board opposed it. And beyond that, notably, some Democrats are warning, even as they criticize this, saying that this can be an effective strategy. Dan Pfeiffer, a name that's familiar, he was one of President Obama's mm -hmm. top advisors, was critical of it. But he said that this shift does pack a political punch and said the Democrats have to have a plan to fight back. You know, though, Ashley, uh, and this, you're the final comment on, on here. It does look like the party, you heard Governor Hutchinson, there's a lot of people that want Trump out of the party. But they, they, they don't seem to want to do anything about it. And now it looks like they can't. And there's even more people who want him out of the party privately. Um, but as of now, that's not going to happen. And the challenge they are grappling with is how do they harness some of that enthusiasm yeah. and populism and what he tapped into with the Republican base while yep. eliminating the more controversial aspects of Trumpism? They've been trying to solve that problem for seven years, I'd argue, and they still haven't. Uh, excellent panel. Thank you. That's all we have for today. Thank you all for watching. We'll be back next week. As if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. NBC News than any other news organization in the world. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.